Tractor Time, the podcast for farmers who care about the earth. Welcome to Tractor Time. It's Thursday, August 2nd. My name is Ryan Slabaugh. I am the host of Tractor Time, which is brought to you by Acres USA, the voice of eco-agriculture. You can learn all about us at www.acresusa.com or at www.ecofarmingdaily.com. We have a bunch of books and and magazines and events that you can attend to subscribe to to learn all about eco-farming. So thank you for joining us today in our podcast, Tractor Time. Around our office, we have a few farmer and rancher types who work, and, and one of them named Doug came in the other day to tell us about his pig. Now, Doug is a large man, a guy who uh, doesn't really have a finesse bone in his body. He breaks stuff and builds stuff, and he wears cowboy boots and belt buckles and shirts larger than my car hood. He's smart. He used to run a seed and feed store and has kids in the rodeo circuit. So he spends most of his time hauling tra- horse trailers around the West, uh, and he has a pig that they come home to. Now, the other day, here in northern Colorado, we got about five inches of rain in a real short bit of time, so a pond formed on Doug's ranch. And while the humans took cover and watched, what did the pig do with the pig? Well, the pig decided to turn into a hippo. So now, with that pond still on Doug's ranch, the Doug, his pig just sits in the flood pond with its snout and eyes barely above the water, and the rest of his body just wallowing in the mud as he eyes for predators or something that he's doing. Uh, anyway... These are the moments that I love, and farmers and ranchers get to enjoy the moments that bring us closer to the animals we raise, the land we live on, uh, which is really a good segue into today's topic, which is about making small farms work and making them economical uh, and using every inch of land and, and resource we have for our benefit. We're going all the way back to last year's Acres USA EcoAg Conference in Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, there, an author, a farmer named Ben Hartman, who I had the chance to introduce uh, for his speak and, and can be a nicer guy. Spoke for more than an hour about a little miracle he and his wife, Rachel Hershberger, created in southern Michigan. It's called On the Lean Farm. It's also the title of his book, uh, The Lean Farm. Uh, ben and his family created you know, connections with local restaurants and vendors in the southern Michigan and Chicago area and created a sustainable, profitable farming venture on less than one acre of land, and it's just amazing what they do and how efficient they are. His talk was educational, inspiring, and, of course, one worth sharing. For those who want to attend our conference this year, it's in Columbus, Ohio, from December 5th through 8th. Uh, you can talk to hundreds of farmers and experts there, including last week's guests, Andre Liu. Learn more at acresusa.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter. Subscribe to our magazine. Email us at podcast at acresusa.com. All those still work. Let us know how you're doing, how you're feeling. Come, come find us in Columbus this year. Uh, meet us, meet folks like Ben Hartman, uh, who we are going to get to his talk, talk next. Again, it's called On the Lean Farm. It's by Ben Hartman. And thank you for listening. Okay, well, thanks for coming. Thanks for choosing this workshop. So here's the question. Is it true? Can you really make a living on one acre? And in my experience, it's most like, most likely with those high, those high dollar value per square foot items, pastured poultry, produce, and other specialty crops. And if you have direct access to the customer, 
And having said that, I also know of exceptions to these. However, I do know that it is definitely only possible with a lean approach. And what this means, in a nutshell, is extremely close attention to your customer, paying close, close attention to your customers, and then ruthlessly eliminating all waste. And let me show you how we do it. Let's take a wide-angle view of U.S. agriculture. How many of us are actually on farms? Fewer than 2%. Okay, and it wasn't that long ago that most of us in the U.S. were on farms. And by the way, this trend continues. And there's more. Farm size has actually doubled in the past 20 years, according to the USDA. And everyone says the trend is likely to continue. And what this means is that those of us who, who remain or who, do, who desire to make a living off a small farm, we simply have to be shrewd. The deck is a bit stacked against us. And this is where the lean system comes in. It was a system that's uh, first designed for, assemb for assembly lines and manufacturing, and now basically everyone's using it in hospitals, schools, farms, and especially high-tech uh, startup companies really popularize the concept. And the, way, the best way I can describe it is that it's an extra gear. So you have a, four, a tractor with four gears, it's that extra fifth gear. Or as a slingshot for small farms, uh, if we're if we're the Dave if we're the Davids and everyone else is the Goliath, this gives us a little a little little boost. Okay, so let's cross the ocean and go back in time, and this is what happened to Japan after World War II. And Toyota is the company that had popularized and invented the lean system, and they had a bombed-out factory. They had no stable suppliers. They had very little capital. And there's a there's extreme there's extremely extremely limited market for vehicles in Japan. People simply weren't buying cars. And on the other hand, they had this competition. And the factories in the US, uh, Ford, GM, and Chrysler, basically the slide was greased. Because they had been producing they had been producing machines for for manufacturer in the war, and they had a huge market for the new vehicles. And so here's what they did. They created what they called the Toyota Production System. And they had an uh, audacious goal. They wanted to catch the U.S. in productivity within three years. And they wanted to do it without large capital investments. In fact, they had to do it without large capital. And so necessity became the mother invention. And it did not take very long before Toyota became 8.3 times more profitable than its competitors. Okay, so it was doing something right. And it was in the early 1980s that people in the U.S. started taking notice. And Massachusetts Institute of Technology uh, sent a team of researchers over to Toyota. And, the, and those researchers simply asked, how are you doing it? And I'll show you what the answers they came up with. And here's an overview of us. We grafted Toyota business model onto our farm. And this is who we are. It's my wife and I, and we have two, two little kids. And essentially, Lean says, be, let's be honest here. Who's really in charge? And I'll tell you who is around our property. And so we went to farm so you can be free. So your farm works for you and not the other way around. And that's why we got into farming. We wanted to raise these kids on the farm and not have to, not have to take outside income. And my friend, uh, Chris Blanche, 
plant or has the best analogy I know of for a small produce farm anyhow. It's like a two-year-old. It's constantly unruly, constantly demanding your attention. You just simply have to set some boundaries. And they make farms, farms and the people on them better. And so a very, very general overview, we're a five-acre farm, and we have less than one acre now in production. We're in northern Indiana with four greenhouses. Uh, these two greenhouses are heated, and we heat them into the high 20s in the winter, and so we have something to give our customers all year. And we also grow tomatoes in them in the summer, and we're in our 10th year of operation. And on the farm, I'm working full-time, and Rachel's now a quarter-time, and our kids are about a tenth or a twentieth, but we're working on making those numbers go higher. <laughs> we have one part-time person who works for us. We have a local commit commitment, so that ninety percent of our food ends up within ten miles of us. And this is this is for uh, ethical reasons or social social reasons, and also for financial reasons, as we'll get into. And we we now produce around thirty crops. We had grown more than eighty. And mostly greens and tomatoes, and none of the big stuff. No watermelons and butternuts, squash, and that sort of thing. And we're the behind-the-scenes for six otters and restaurants. And you can see the distribution of our sales. About a third go to CSA, CSA customers, a third to a farmer's market, and a third to wholesale accounts. And then we do keep our, do keep our hours sane, under 40 hours. And we do earn a comfortable living for our family. And uh, people want to know what we make on uh, one acre. Uh, most years, we're grossing more than 100. And we're, we're, uh, we're <clears throat> at this point, uh, we've been able to net more than half. And so here are the metrics we are, that we are using to keep us on track. And this is not to suggest these are universal metrics. This is what works in our community, in our context. And so if we're going to grow our crop, we like it to yield 250 a square foot or more. And we harvest everything into 14-gallon totes. And so we wanted to aim for a high dollar value per volume. And so we set a target of $35 should fit in one of these totes. And it was Rachel who came up with this because she was doing our marketing. And she was getting sick of lifting these heavy totes. You know, maybe had one or two, one or two watermelons in it and just a couple of dollars of value in a tote. She said, if you're going to send something to market, give me some high dollar value totes. And then next, if we're doing any type of selling activity, and this is a point in which the, the delivery vehicle leaves the property. Proper, proper, if we're going to a wholesale, if we're going to a farmer's market or dropping off CSA boxes, we aim to do $100 an hour. And so, for instance, if it's a six-hour mar farmer's market, we hope to get 600 out of that market. And these are our goals. We don't always keep them. However, they're metrics that have constrained our operation. I said it's like a two-year-old. You have to set some boundaries. And they, they help us keep us on track. And here's a specific example of what I'm talking about. And so uh, uh, one year we figured out the dollar value per square foot. And another year we figured out the dollar value per these 14 gallon totes. And then we cut off a line about here. And there's a bunch of crops we used to produce that are down here. Anyhow, so here's our story before looking. I grew up on a large corn and soybean and cattle farm. And I decided for some reason to get degrees in English and philosophy. And I speak English on a daily basis. And I love to get on a high horse. And so I'm using both of them. 
And Rachel grew up with a large family with a giant garden, did a lot of canning, that sort of thing. So it's in her genes, too. Uh, and at the beginning, we didn't have any money. We lived in town, and we fixed up this dilapidated Spanish colonial type of house we bought from Habitat for Humanity. They were going to demolish the house. And we farmed on rented land and used our clay. There was a clay bottom tennis court next to this property. And we decided to till in that tennis court and grow produce. And so we started very, very small, 10 CSA members in a small booth at the market. And there's a picture of that clay bottom tennis court. How young and naive. <laughs> and then, talk about naive, there's this house. It was cheap. Uh, how we flipped the house. So we spent a couple of years and fixed it as we were growing produce. And we were able to finally afford a five-acre farm. It was an old Amish dairy farm. And that first year, we started just with a plan. Uh, we had known enough about farming uh, that we knew we needed some basic infrastructure to be profitable. And so we built one greenhouse. Uh, we installed some drain tiles, some irrigation, some fences, a processing room, a walk-in. And we didn't do much farming at all that first year. And I should say, too, in these early years, we, uh, we were also working part-time uh, in southern Michigan at a microgreens and petite greens farm. Uh, that was selling greens to high-end restaurants in Chicago. And so we had our toes dipped in, an, in, the, in a couple different agricultural worlds. And those first years, we worked really, really hard. And it's safe to say that our early production system is low-tech and back-breaking. Uh, we used walk-behind tillers, a lot of hand tools, and uh, it's conservative to say we worked 60-hour weeks. And we, we say we're profit we were profitable, but we were also tired. Okay, so let's get back to the lean system. Here's how Toyota managed to do it. As a four-part system, number one, they got very, they got very organized with this system they called 5S. And I'm going to go through each, each of these in a minute. And then they precisely identified value. And they got this information from their customers. And this was something U.S. manufacturers were not doing. For instance... Henry Ford, one of the most famous sayings of Henry Ford was that he said, my customers can have any color they want so long as it's black. Okay? And Toyota said, our customers, they can have any color they want, period. And they were paying very close attention. And I'll give you an example from 2005. Does anyone here uh, own a Toyota Sienna? Okay, no one shoot, because I'm hoping to ask some questions about it. I've never actually uh, owned a Sienna. I've been at them. Um, However, supposedly in 05, Toyota wanted to redesign the Sienna. And so what they did is they sent an engineer from uh, Toyota headquarters over to their main market, which is Mexico, the U.S., and Canada. And they told that engineer, we want you to drive a, a Sienna in all 50 states, in all parts of Canada, in all parts of Mexico. And he did what they call Genshi Gambudsu, a process of close and personal direct observation to, th to thoroughly understand a situation. And here's what he noticed. In Santa Fe, New Mexico, for instance. Has anyone been to Santa Fe? Okay, supposedly, I haven't, but supposedly there are a lot of tight turns. And he had a hard time turning. And so he called home and said, let's tighten the turning radius by 15 degrees. He noticed that in the U.S. in particular, we like to drive long distance, and we like to eat as we're driving. This doesn't happen in Japan, apparently. And so he, he, he designed a flip-up console, very easy to set a hamburger and, and fries. And suppo 
Supposedly, in Indiana, there's something like 5,000 cub holders. <laughs> the thir third thing he noticed, he went to, this is my favorite, he went to Hanover, Michigan, and he went to a Home Depot, and he didn't go in. He just stood in the parking lot. And Taichi Ono, who designed the lean system for Toyota, he was famous for doing this. He would have engineers, he drew a circle in the middle of a manufacturing facility, and he'd tell his engineers, probably in their first week or so, uh, go stand in that circle and don't move for eight hours. And just observe. Anyhow, so he went in the parking lot at Hanover, Michigan, and he observed how, how Americans were do-it-yourselfers. You know, we're work, we, do a, we do the 9 to 5 thing, Monday to Friday, Monday to Friday then we, uh, we're going to add a room onto our house Saturday and Sunday. And he saw people uh, coming out of the Home Depot with 4 by, four by 8 sheets of drywall, 4 by 8 sheets of plywood, everything's 4 by 8. And they couldn't get it into their vans. And so they're trying to, trying to strap it to the roof, trying to bungee the back hatch. And, uh, and I can relate. We used to do this all the time in our little vehicles. And he called home immediately and said, the next, next minivan we produce, we're going to get a 4 bay sheet of whatever in it. And at this point, if you purchase a minivan, you're going to be able to get a 4 bay sheet of, dry, of drywall in it. And it doesn't matter who produces it. Anyhow, this is what I mean by close observation of customers. They're taking, a, they're taking a, uh, an extra step, st usually beyond their competitors. Okay, next is cutting out the Muda. And this means anything that isn't a service of adding value. If it's not producing the precise product that the customer is saying that they will, it's a Muda activity. And I'm going to get into more definition here because that's really at the heart of the system. And I should say, too, there's a difference between Muda and waste. Because... When we think of the term waste, we think of garbage, uh, stuff going to the trash. The, the concept of Muda is, is anything that's not adding value in a, fact, in a factory or in a workplace environment. And so, for instance, even eating your lunch is, is Muda in a technical sense because it's, it's not adding value. And so it roughly translates to waste. I'm not saying eating your lunch is a wasteful activity. You have to eat your lunch. And so the next step then is to practice Kaizen. And this means to continuously improve every year. And essentially, it means do each of these top three with more, pre more precision every year. Get more organized, more precise identified value, and cut out even more waste. And this is my favorite verbal description. He said, Taichi Ono said, all we're doing is looking at the timeline uh, from the moment a customer gives us an order to the moment which we collect the cash. And we're just reducing that timeline by removing the waste. And so, oh, it was a CSA customer who introduced us to Lean. And he, uh, Steve Brenham is his name, and he, uh, he owns the aluminum trailer company in Napanee, Indiana. And at first we said no. <laughs> and, the, and, and the reason is, I told him, we're just too very, things are too very ball here. I said, imagine running your factory without a roof. And then try to standardize. It just can't happen. I was just skeptical that the system would work. And then we also had some ethical questions, too. And we have living animals, living plants. And he's dealing with inert materials, aluminum. And so, for instance, maximizing your fixed costs is at the heart of the lean system. Fixed costs are those costs you're going to have no matter what you produce, how much you produce. Costs on buildings and land and that sort of thing. And we wonder, do we really want to maximize the fixed cost? Because in a factory context, at least uh, environmental improvement, 
for instance, they're getting more product out of a smaller facility. And Toyota was famous for doing for, for working on a tiny factories compared compared to for NGM, which built these huge Portland factories. However, in a farm context, it means stuffing as many hogs into a hog house as possible. And we didn't know we we just we just had too many questions. Anyhow, we argued back and forth a little. It was a, fr it was a friendly argument because he's one of our cus customers. And in the end, however, we said yes. And here's the reason. It's, it's a very, it came down to a very, very powerful formula, formula, which is that eliminated waste equals free capacity to do more. And let me show you what I mean. If you eliminate just one hour per week from your process, if you can shrink your process by one hour a week over 20 years, you free up six months or more. If you can take four, if you can shave four, four hours per week, then every 10 years you can take a whole year off. You can, use, you can also use that 10th year to produce more. And so it's a dramatically, it's a way to dramatically go past without large investments. And at that time, like I said, we were poor. And we had money for our first greenhouse, for a small BCS or not much more. And so in our way of thinking, there was one simple way to add capacity. It's to purchase a bigger tractor. It's to purchase more land. It's to add, it's to add on a greenhouse. Essentially to throw, throw, mon throw money out of production problems. And Steve said, you can, you, can, you can have a low capital business on a small acreage and still make it. And he said, the reality is most businesses are addicted to this growth through expansion model. However, and I'm not saying that's wrong. At some point, you need to pick up more customers and you have to grow your business. However, Lean says there's also another way, it's process. And let's look at this. This is what happens on most farms. Most activities are in the waste category, and there's a little bit of value adding that happens. And a bunch of agribusiness is focused right here. Uh, they want to sell you bigger tractors, more expensive greenhouses, chemical inputs, or genetic modification, anything to compress the time value adding. And here's what Lean says. There's an elephant in the room here. <laughs> There's a, most of your process, if you delineate what's happening on a day-to-day -day basis, much of what you're doing is, in, is muta, and very little is actually value-adding. Value and so let's attack the elephant in the room. In a culture of consumption, we're, we're addicted to throwing money at our problems. And so here's how we apply these concepts. Uh, number one, we use that 5S system and, and declutter the farm. And the reason is, it, in our business anyhow, it's, it really surprises how little we actually need. And once we had decluttered, it surprises how much time we had wasted looking for that stupid hoe, uh, tripping over that dumb row cover that didn't have a home. And once we had leaned up, once we decluttered, uh, we were able to move much faster. And so we began by visiting Steve's factory. And here's what I noticed. Each worker in this factory had a mobile workstation. And each worker had precisely the tools they needed and not one tool more. And this workstation was always within an arm's reach. There's casters on here. And the workers would move it around with them. And so, oh, we wondered if we could do something like that on a farm. I'll show you how. Uh, we got rid of everything we didn't use on a daily basis or almost daily basis for adding value. We didn't squirrel it. We got it off the property. And this is a very important concept, very difficult for me to do. And we're not perfect. We have too much on the property even now. However, this is the goal. And then we, we aim for simplicity. Let's find the fewest tools we can to get the most done. And, and I'm a tool addict. We had dozens of hoes, dozens of shovels, and um, 
even in a trade show here, I'm, uh, I love looking at the tools. However, let's, fit, let's find one or two that's, that's going to get the job done and get rid of everything else. And then we set up a red tag holding area. And this is what lean, lean businesses will have a red tag room in which they place items not useful for production. And maybe on a once a week or once a month basis, uh, they'll have someone who will go around the factor, factory and do a tool assessment. And if a tool's not getting used, they get rid of it by putting it in a red tag holding area. And then you can think it over for a couple of months. And after a couple of months, and we have a farm equipment auction that rolls around twice a year. And if we haven't been using that tool by the time the equipment auction rolls around, then maybe we need to think about sending it off to that equipment auction. In other words, get it off the property. Here's some before and after. So does this look familiar? And so we chose a few tools we were using on a, on a regular basis, and we got rid of everything else. And we said they should be in a worker's hands or in its home. There shouldn't be a third option. And if you have a two-year-old, two you know there's lots of third options. However, this is the goal. And then we said we're going to set them in order. Let's go back here. We're going to store these tools at eye level. We're going to store them close to where we're using them. And so when Steve visited our farm the first time, he said, I'd like to observe your tomato pruning process. And so I, we kept all our tools in a central tool storage area. And so I walked from the greenhouse and grabbed the pruners. And then I went and pruned the tomatoes, and I walked back to the stool storage area and hung up the, the pruners. And he timed it, and he said, you could, have pruned a whole, you could have pruned a whole extra row of tomatoes in the time it took you to walk back and forth. And so now we hang them. He said, you should hang those pruners where you need them. So we actually have hooks on all of our greenhouses. We have knives and pruners and an essential kit for each greenhouse on that, hanging on that greenhouse. And it costs a little extra. We you know, duplicated some tools. However, for the lower cost hand tools, it made sense. And so there's another picture. We have magnets and hooks all over the property. Okay, then the next principle is you use the 10-year-old test. And so what they do in, in a lean facility, the goal is that a 10-year-old should be able to enter the factory and you tell them, hey, get, uh, give me a flat screwdriver. And it's intuitive enough, they'll be able to find that screwdriver. Okay, it's just that easy to find what you need. And we wondered, could we do this with a two-year-old? <laughs> and so we hung our tools, and you see eye level is a relative concept here. <laughs> Anyhow, third principle is shine. And this means uh, cleaning with a toothbrush, because leaning is actually, leaning up is about seeing. It's about noticing when, when waste is creeping into your process. And then you want to make sure your spaces are well lit. And so here's some before and after pictures. This was our old processing area. It was sort of dimly, it was dimly lit. However, it was an adequate working environment. And then we installed these high lumen light fixtures. Uh, we got out some paint cans and painted everything in here. And even in the greenhouses, we installed floodlights in the greenhouse. So and when we're working in the early mornings and evenings, we have better lighting. And friends joke that it's like going to Wrigley Field. You hear this koosh, koosh, koosh of all the lights coming on. And that's an exaggeration. It's not exactly like that. But the point, the point is we want to be able to see our work and see our waste. Next is standardizing. In other words, doing these first three as part of everyday work. And again, aim for simplicity. Let's do the same thing the same way every time. Complexity is the enemy of lean. And if you've tried to grow produce, you know how complex, or if you've opened up a seed catalog, you know there are, 
There are just too many options, and it's easy to become too complex. And then they use this principle called short high-frequency cleaning and, and not doing these tasks once a year, not doing 5S once a year, doing it on an everyday basis. And the habit that we had been in was to use the property all growing season and just to junk it up because we knew we have a couple off months in the winter we'd have time to clean it up. And in reality, what happens is in produce, as you're junking up the property, your work slows. Every week it gets slower because you're spending more time looking for the hose, more time tripping over that row cover. Okay? And so the lean principle here is short, high frequency. And this means when we're done, when we're done washing the head lettuce, we, re we return the processing area to the same condition immediately. And so we're, we're constantly doing uh, short cleaning tasks. And to, to, simpl to simplify and standardize your system, Systems. Here's an example. Uh, we used to use probably 10 or more types of totes and containers to harvest. And to make it fair to new workers, we just decided to choose one. And to make as many of our systems as intuitive as possible. So even new workers, we have, we have three or four new interns come onto the property every year. And we want to make it as easy for them as possible to slip into a flow and to, to immediately become productive. Okay, so the last step is ingrain. You want to ingrain the behavior using discipline. And here's how Toyota did it, is that their works, they sent, an, they sent someone around to each workstation at the end of the week to give a numerical rating to the workstation based on how closely they're adhering to the 5S system. And uh, if you get a high rank, if you get consistently high numbers, then you, you might qualify for a bonus or that sort of thing. Anyhow, so use some form of discipline to make sure this happens. Here's how we do it, is we use visual systems this is also a lean concept, and you'll see a lot of uh, visual cues in, in lean factories. Because a picture actually is worth a thousand words. And so we took a picture of our workspaces when they were in perfect condition. And then we tell our workers, when you're done using it, just make it look like what the picture is. And this saves a ton of verbal back and forth. It tells the worker what the standard is. And we leave it up to the worker to use whatever order they see fit. We don't tell them, hey, begin with the totes and then, and then hose the floor, or that sort of thing. We just tell them, make it look like what the picture is. Okay, so here's the whole point of this 5S system. It's, it's, it's actually not just efficiency. It's psychology. And here's what researchers tell us. Uh, is uh, We're going to be the happiest when we have just what we need and we have clear boundaries. I'll give you a couple of examples. When people are downhill skiing, it's very easy to enter into a state of psychological flow. And, and I'm not a downhill skier. I, I did it enough to know I should stay off the slopes. Anyhow, I, I know that people are happy doing it because they have precisely what they need. They're generally not able to take more than they need down the hill. And they have to be focused. If they're not focused, they're going to conk their head. And the same goes with playing a game of chess. I think the reason the game has been so popular for so long is that you have precisely the pieces you need and you have precise set of rules that you're following every time that you play. So it's, it's, it's easy to enter into that state of psychological flow. And this happen, can, can actually happen on a farm. And look how happy I am when I'm hoeing. You're not supposed to be happy when you're hoeing. <laughs> Anyhow, the point is if we have what we need and no more, then we're actually going to be happier, and research says we're actually going to be more productive. Okay, so step number two is this customer piece. 
and you want to precisely identify value, and there's two points. Uh, number one is to be scientific. In other words, don't use your own assumptions. You don't actually know your customer as well as you think you do. That's been my experience. And so you want to rely as much as you can on actual data. Use surveys, interview your customers. Uh, do uh, number two, Genshi Gambutsu, close and personal observation. For instance, we love it when we get in our customers, in a CSA customer invite us over for dinner because we get to observe how they're unloading their CSA package. We'll poke, we might poke our nose in the refrigerator and see, see actually what's getting used and what isn't. Because here's what happens in food is people, not that people are inherently dishonest, they just want to be very polite. And when's the last time you went to a restaurant and the chef or the waiter or waitress came around and said, hey, how was the meal? They actually gave them an honest answer. Okay? It can be very difficult in food, I found, to actually get at customer value. I'll show you some ways we do it. Uh, okay, these are the three questions at the heart of the whole of the, of the whole lean system. Actually, is knowing what customers when they want it and the amount they want. And the more precisely you can answer those three questions and deliver deliver on those answers, the more profitable you'll be as a business. It doesn't matter how big you are. And so we're surveying all the time what they want, when they want, and what amount. And I told you these tech startups they love the lean system. I mean, you can't go into a website anymore without getting a little window to pop up asking you for, a, for what your opinion is and how efficient the website was, that sort of thing. And so they're, using, they're, they're trying to get the answer to these questions. And so I guess what, how we do this with our CSA customers is uh, twice per year, or I send them a very simple email that basically asks a version of these questions. Uh, did you get the items that you wanted? Is the delivery on a convenient schedule for you? Um, did you get the amount you needed, or were, you, were, were we giving you too much or too little, that sort of thing? And then we talk to our customers one-to-one -one and really try to get it answers, precise answers to these questions. And it changes all the time, too. Uh, customer taste change, and, and in, in, the, in our business, anyhow, people want it more convenient every year. They want pickups more convenient. Uh, they want their food further processed every year, that sort of thing. And uh, another example is we created a tomato sticky note. And we place our sticky note on the wall of a processing area. And it just lists our wholesale customers and then the types of tomatoes that they want. For example, uh, the food co-op wants a fairly, a fairly orange tomato. And the reason is, by the time their customers are going to be eating that tomato, a whole week might have passed. Because it takes some time to get it on the shelf and takes some time for the customer to get it home. Anyhow, they don't want super ripe tomatoes. However, we also deliver to a restaurant that serves a half-pound hamburger, and they want the largest tomatoes we can give them. And it's not, and, and so on. We have four or five other places that we deliver tomatoes to. And it's not that these places couldn't buy tomatoes from other producers. There's, there's lots of tomato producers in our area. It's just that they choose us because we've taken that little extra baby step, and we've answered these questions just a little more precisely. And what, another example of their CSA is pickups. And this gets at this one here. When do they want it? And this is an, this is an often forgotten piece if, for people doing direct marketing. And what we heard was it was inconvenient for customers to come out to the farm and pick up. And, and so we set up pickup locations. And then a year later, we heard even that was a little bit inconvenient because we, we gave them a window of three or four hours to pick up their produce. And they said, we've got kids who have after-school activities. It's just hard to do. And so we installed coolers at our pickup locations. And these were just chest freezers uh, that we powered up to be refrigerators. So it was a low cost, 
or use chest freezers, low-cost thing to do. However, it meant our customers could come pick up at their convenience. And the next year, we heard even that's too inconvenient. <laughs> and so we partnered with our food co-op. Our customers, most of them told us they shop anyhow at the food co-op. And so we set a, cool, a large cooler at the food co-op, and they can pick their CSA up as they're doing their other grocery shopping and save them a trip all to get there. And next year, we're probably going to their house and cook for them and spoon feed them. <laughs> okay, and we even surveyed to determine their preferred communication method. And uh, one personal note is when I graduated from college, uh, I developed a speech impediment, and it's called spasmodic dystonia. And I went to a couple of speech, uh, uh, speech therapists, and they sort of told me I could get worse before it gets better. And this didn't sound good to me. I thought I'd better get into a non-speaking career. Look how well that's turning out. <laughs> Anyhow, the point is, when communicating with customers, I thought it was an inconvenience. However, it's actually part of our product because it answers that when question. And so with our, our restaurant chefs, I asked them, do you want an email? Do you want a text? Uh, and when do you want that email? When do you want that text? It's, it's up to them. They're pulling our system. I'm working for them. And, and it's something that I actually enjoy doing now because I know it's, uh, it, it allows us to charge more for our product. And it adds, uh, it adds what marketers call stickiness. Okay, when you answer those three questions, your product becomes stickier. It's like you're pouring honey over it, and they can't keep their hands off of it. And this is, this is really the way to get customers. And another illustration here is to use what's called pool. So your customer's out front pooling your product as if shopping from a vending machine, and you're just replenishing it. And so it's up to them to answer these questions. So here's why farms fail, using this analysis. Number one, and we've been guilty of all three of these here, so I'm not trying to point fingers, is that farmers have a technology fascination. We love tractors, we love our greenhouses, we love our implements, and we let those define value, not our customer. It should be the other way around. Uh, we have product fascination. We love growing specialty peppers, Asian noodle beans, that sort of thing, because, because they fascinate us, not our customers. And we've learned to put those things in a home garden, not in our production garden. And we let our customers choose what we're going to order from the seed catalog. Next is a process fascination. And I don't know about your area, but in our area, it seems like it's a flavor of the month sort of thing, where people come around trying to sell you rooftop gardening systems, hydroponic systems, LED systems, vertical growing system. And it's not that these might not be the perfect solution, or, or you know, a great solution for your farm and the problems you're having. However, they shouldn't lead your farm. They should be secondary to the customer. And so you should choose a system, choose products, choose your technology, um, based on being able to supply customers what they want, when they want, and in the right amount. Does that make sense? Okay, so we'd applied 5S, and we figured out what our customers valued. Now what? Now comes the hard part. We're going to banish the waste. And the end goal is smooth flow. I talked about psychologi psychological flow, and here I'm talking about production flow to produce and deliver value with as few interruptions as possible. In other words, to shorten Taichi Ono's timeline from concept to cash. Okay, I'm going to spend a minute here because this is the hardest part to wrap your minds around. However, it's probably the most important. There's actually on your farm, if you think about your farm even right now, there's only three types of activities that are happening according to the lean method. Number one would be type one muda. 
And these are activities that might be needed, but often they can be shortened. And they're certainly not adding value for your customer. Doing your taxes. You have to do your taxes, for instance. However, if you shorten that activity, you have more time to add value. Leaving through seed catalogs, which we love to do. However, well, I'm not going to get a check in the mail because I spent all afternoon leaving through seed catalogs. Uh, weeding, field passes. In other words, driving around with the tractor. I grew up on a farm, love driving tractors. Customer doesn't pay me to drive tractors. Uh, eating your lunch, uh, I talk about. Even this 5S process, is the customer not paying me to clean the floor. And so are there, more, are there faster, more efficient ways of doing 5S? Okay, so the only reason for type one mood is to make value adding easier. And I went to a lean uh, manufacturing conference once uh, where the keynote speaker insulted the audience. He said, this is all Muda. And you, you, he said, you all are Muda. Because back home at your factories, there are people on the floor who are putting two sheets of metal together, making the value of that steel uh, go up. And they're the ones adding value for your customer. And the only reason to justify your existence here is to make it easier for them. And so if you're a technology person, if you're an accountant, that sort of thing, your goal is to make it easier for those persons actually adding value. And that's the reason corporations, companies that put too much emphasis on their office, and they say universities are guilty of this, uh, there's, there's just too much investment often in the higher levels and not enough in the lower levels where the value is being added. Anyhow, so you want to be skeptical about these activities. I'm not saying eliminate your accounting, but be skeptical. Number two, the places to start cutting waste is defect. It's motion waste, looking for tools, human material. This is the pure waste. These are activities that definitely don't have to happen. This is when you store a product too long in your freezer, it becomes defective. This is when you grow too many watermelons. Uh, and so you want to, with tight production, uh, eliminating defect, eliminating overproduction is an excellent way to grow your business. And then the last set of activities is value-adding. And in our, in our line of business, it's actually very few activities in this category. It's putting a seed in the ground. It's harvesting, washing, displaying, and delivery. Essentially, it's a direct action on an object that causes the, vo the value of the object to go up. Okay, so that seed is worth more when I put it in the ground than it is sitting in my mailbox. And that seed is actually worth a ton more when I harvest. I can't convince a customer to come out and do their own harvest. And I probably double or triple the value when I take a hose to those carrots. Because it's much easier to sell clean carrots than it is dirty carrots. I, I double or triple the value of them. Uh, when I display those carrots, uh, it's much easier to sell carrots when they're not locked in a box. When you put them out on your table, market table, and show your customers, this is an activity that adds value. And this is why I tell people at markets, I say stack it high and watch it fly. You want to show your customers what you have. Because it's worth, a, it's worth a lot more when they can see it than when you're hiding it. And then delivery. Uh, all these activities, our carrots are worth more when they're in the right location. They're not worth much on our farm. And so these are activities that are adding value to our product. They're direct actions on the object. Cause value to go up. And this is where you want to put the focus of your energy. And you want to, you want to shrink these mudas. Okay, so here's an example of a Danish uh, dairy farm, lean systems and widespread use in Denmark, and the government hires consultants to teach people this system. And one thing they, they do is what's called value stream mapping. And so you see there's three colors of sticky notes, and each of these might indicate a type one MUDA, type two MUDA, or a value adding activity. And then what they're gonna do is they're gonna say, hey, the type one MUDA, 
Is this something that, that actually needed to happen? Or can we shorten it somehow? A type 2 MUDA, how can we get rid of it? And I'm guessing these are the type 2 MUDAs. They're saying we're going to aim to get rid of all these over here. And so they'll have a meeting and say, how can we get rid of these activities? And then put their best focus on their value-adding activities. This is a value stream map of the aluminum trailer company. So they can become quite complex. And on a farm, too, they can become, uh, they can be very complex very quickly. And I'm not saying you have to get to this level of complexity. We certainly don't. Um, however, if you understand the concept that there's only three types of activities, and you want most of your actions on a daily basis to be in that value-adding category, that's the important piece. Here's a, here's a fair way of looking at this concept is, uh, Shingeo Shingo, who designed the lean system, who helped invent the lean system, uh, said it's, it's actually when two pieces of metal are joined together, they each gain value. And so it's the last turn of that bolt. The last turn of a bolt tightens it. The rest is just movement. And what he means by the rest is he means getting that piece of metal to the factory. He means unloading it. He means getting it on the assembly line. He means pushing it down the assembly line. He means everything except the last turn of that bolt. Because that's the flash point at which value is added. And so you want to think in your own operation, where are my flash points? Uh, when, is my, when am I touching my product and causing the value of it to go up? And it's different on all farms. I can't, I can't tell you where those are on your operation, but that's the concept. And so the Japanese are a very precise culture and have developed 10 specific types of muda. And Taichi Yon came up with the first seven. He said overproduction is the most insidious. This is when you uh, grow more than you can sell. And supposedly 20% of fresh fruits and vegetables in the U.S. are left in the field. So overproduction is very rampant in, in, in produce. Uh, waiting waste. Is, you want to ask, when are people standing around? What is my product sitting around? And for sure, you have to sometimes you know, freeze chicken. You have, we have to store a product in a cooler until we can get it to the customer. However, the question we're asking is, how can we shorten the time it takes from harvest to getting into the hands of our customers? Because that's a form of waiting waste. That's a cost. Transportation, driving around too much, overprocessing. Uh, for instance, we used to put fancy labels on, on, on our salad greens. Uh, had our logo on. Those labels cost about 19 cents each. And then we decided to try not putting the logo on. Guess what? We sold just as much. Okay, so we're overdoing. It's up to the customer. These questions are up to the customer, not up to you. Inventory. And you probably heard this just-in-time system uh, where what Toyota does is instead of having a warehouse of bumpers to go onto their vehicles, they're going to ask their bumper supplier to deliver the precise number of bumpers they need within two hours of them going on the vehicle. It's very difficult for suppliers to do. However, they mandated this. Uh, whereas, G, G, I mean, other companies were, were famous for having these large warehouses and having stockpiling lots of parts. And then they accrue what's called inventory carrying cost. Uh, when the part becomes obsolete, for instance, uh, when the vehicle type changes and it's no longer needed, and the cost of, to build the warehouse, pay taxes on it, that sort of thing. Anyhow, how we use this is we don't put one seed order in. Uh, we put 20 or 30 seed orders in and order small amounts as we're using them. This keeps our, our inventory low, and it's actually difficult to store seeds. And seed companies have invested hundreds of thousands into climate-controlled rooms, and we're happy to put that cost onto them. 
uh, most ways. And, and these ones that are, we're going to go over in a little more detail here in a minute. There's a defect. Uh, there's the waste of overburden. Uh, there's uneven production in sales. You want to smooth, uh, you know, smooth out your operations as much as possible. I know it's difficult to do on the farm. And unused talent. Any good idea, any good idea that goes unspoken is, is according to the system of formal waste. Okay, so here's some examples. I'm a, I'm a practical person, not really a theoretical person. So we're going to show you practically how this happens in our operation. And just a word of warning is that wastes are unique. And so the defect waste in your, on your farm is different than the defect waste on ours. And so the solutions are also unique. So here's a few tricks. In, in the Japanese language, there's to move and to work are pronounced exactly the same. However, they're written slightly differently. And do you see what the difference is? There's a radical here. And does anyone know what this is? Uh-huh. It stands for a human, a person. And so, in other words, to move is different than to work because to work means there's a human element. And so one of my favorite lines from Ono, he said that animals move, humans can work. And so let's apply thinking to our motion. And one of the things they did at Toyota was this, this idea of spaghetti diagrams. And you can do it on your farm. It's not that hard. What we did is we had someone in our processing area on a Friday afternoon. We were very busy in there. I gave him a blank sheet of paper and a pencil. And whenever someone moved, they drew a line on that sheet of paper. And after not too long, 45 minutes or an hour, the, that piece of paper looked like spaghetti noodles, like a big plate of spaghetti. And so the question then is to analyze it. Say, hey, can we shorten noodles? Can we straighten noodles? Can we actually eliminate some noodles? And so we we'd redesigned our, I'm not going to get into specific, we redesigned our processing area based on where those noodles came out. And the same with our hosing area. We redesigned the hosing area based on uh, some spaghetti analyses. And, and, and trying to make that, that flow of product as smooth as possible. Here's an example of spaghetti noodles at the aluminum trailer company. Okay, so they can get quite complex. And Steve told me some of their workstations have more work to do than others. And we did the same with our field preparation. Uh, we were using a fairly traditional field preparation, cover crops, crop rotation, a lot of field passes with the tractor. I told you I love to drive tractors. However, we wondered, might, there be, might we be doing too many field passes? And, and cover cropping, I'm not opposed to cover crops. I love them. However, in our small situation, we noticed it's taking a lot of time to plant, a lot of time to turn them in, a lot of time in the field, and there's a higher seed cost. And so we came up with this raised bed compost system. And so we covered 8 to 12 inches of compost over the entire growing area, which we shrunk to about half an acre. And we didn't do this overnight. It took two or three years, I think, mean, three or four inches a year. And then we, did, we installed 100 semi-permanent raised beds. And these raised beds have very high organic miter and very high soil biological activity. And so there's some, I'll show you, show you some illustrations. So this is the new raised bed system here. We just shape them with a bed shaper. But you see how dark and rich that the soil is. And uh, we can grow just about anything we want in here. And the thing I like to point out for produce people or people wanting to get into making a lot of compost is you don't have to be a perfectionist. Uh, we certainly uh, measure the temperature in our compost, make sure it's getting hot enough to kill weeds and pathogens. 
However, you can see it can go on. Sort of, there's, it can go. It can go on fairly chunky. It's if you're using it in a potting mix, that sort of thing. Then you want to use a shredder or a sifter or, and uh, get more perfectionistic about your compost. However, we just use a skid loader to turn it. So doesn't need a, doesn't require a lot of investment in equipment. This is a picture of, I took this just a couple of weeks ago, and so this is the amount of compost we'll go through in one year. And at this point, we're just skim coating an inch or two on the surface on an as-needed basis because we've already built it up. Um, we get about 75 cubic yards of raw materials in every spring, and then turn it five times and make a windrow here uh, for the next year. So we work about a year ahead of making the compost. And there's an example of doing some bed shaping. And the compost has replaced, one reason we like it is the compost has replaced um, mineral inputs, fish emulsion, and all the money we're spending on other fertility methods, which I'm not against. That might, this might be good solutions in your context. However, given that we have free duck manure, we had access to raw materials, this made sense. And it reduced our field passes and, and, and leaned up our field preparation. So soil is always very loose, often no need to get the tiller, tiller out. Uh, fertility management's fast, and it's very quick to quote flip our beds to go from one crop to the next. We're in a small acreage, so we want to go three or four crops in the same area sometimes in here. And so you're looking at this is the second, the end of the second year for these three plots, and so this is the sixth crop that has been in here. We'll just pull the old crop and put the new one in, and that's the end goal. We'd like to get here on the whole farm, and we're not there yet. However, that's zero field prep. We're doing all value adding, no motive, all value adding activity, which when you put a transplant in the ground, it's worth a lot more than it is sitting in your greenhouse. And so we can focus on those value adding activities and not on our, our tractor passes. Okay, so if you think we're nuts, <laughs> here's some historical inspiration. Uh, my brother is a head librarian at Goshen College. It's a Mennonite liberal arts college in, in, in Goshen, Indiana. And I put the task to him. I said, I'd like to know how farmers in medieval Japan were doing it, especially in produce. And, and it took him a long time. To, he found a scroll from the year 927. And he says this is the only known record we have of medieval farming practices uh, in Japan. And so I hope you appreciate this, because he, he took a lot of digging here. Anyhow, so look at this record for spring onions. Uh, 3.4 liters of seeds, 1,200 seedlings. Uh, one and a half days for three tillings, one ox, one driver, and so on. And then 35 days to transport 210 loads of manure. Out of 87 and a half days work, 35 of them, almost half, were devoted to composting. This is amazing. So this is a very, it's a very old system. It's not a new, I didn't come up with it. This is how produce has been grown for centuries. Uh, for coriander, and there's a whole list of crops. I'm not just picking out two out, outliers here. Uh, for corianders, uh, we're looking at 21.3 liters of seed, a day to till, one ox and a driver, two days to hand till, two days to form the ridges, 22 days to transport the manure. And so out of 28 days' work, almost all of them are spent moving manure. I bet they wish they had skid lookers. Here's a book that's just full of composting stories. And I'm sure some of you are familiar with it. In the early 1900s, University of Wisconsin agronomist F.H. King, and he invented the silos that you see on farms. He went over to China, Korea, and Japan, and he wanted to answer the question, how is it that these people are feeding their populations, 
for so many centuries and not depleting their soil? How can their productivity levels be so high for so long? Because at that time in the U.S., we were having a problem. There was massive soil depletion. Topsoil was eroding very quickly. And we had a growing population. And the answer he came up with was composting. The Japanese, in the year he was there, 08, composted 22 million tons, more than 22 million tons of compost. Uh, horses, cattle, swine, poultry manures, uh, herbage, straw, and other waste. His, his conclusion was farmers long realized that much time is required to transform organic matter into forms available for plant food. And by such practice, with heavy fertilization, the soil is made to do full duty throughout the growing season. And I like that term, full duty. He said they're growing three, four crops a year on, on areas of ground that we're used to, We're lucky to get one or two crops to come off of successfully. Okay, so that's my humility thing, saying I'm not the one who came up with it. This is, a very, this, is a, this is an ancient way of growing produce. And here's the best way to, let's go back to motion waste. The best way to remove motion waste is just to keep the farm small and keep crops close to growing areas. And so you see we're maximizing every inch here. We're tucking everything around the greenhouses, close to our processing area. And I can't tell you how many produce farms have gone on where you'll have the, the green beans two miles away from the processing area. You'll have the tomatoes, uh, tomatoes a mile down the road over here. And I want to tell people, and, and yet they have all this wonderful land close to home. And I want to tell people, just tuck it all in, bring it all home. Let the chickens come home to roost. Another trick is this idea of maximizing fixed costs. And if you're doing animals, I, 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 I think there are some questions you need to ask. With produce, we thought, hey, what if we could keep the greenhouses full all year with the most crapful crops we know of? Uh, hey, what if we could keep our growing areas full? And so we don't use complex field maps, but when one crop is finished, we'll get the tractor in here, we'll take out that crop, we'll add a little compost if needed, We'll put another one in and keep us keep our system at full capacity. That's another way to work at this motion waste. Okay, I'm go I'm gonna skip ahead just just a, just a minute here because we're gonna run out of time. Uh, to say one another thing we did was we decided to transplant everything we grow. And the reason is when we drag seeded, we realized there's a lot of defect that was happening. Because we're leaving, we were leaving too much up to nature, because it oftentimes get too hot, or the soil, the soil would plug up and seeds wouldn't germinate. And our goal, and we're not, we haven't reached, it, but the goal is for every seed that we order to turn into cash. And if it hasn't turned into cash, then we ask, well, what happened? At what point along the line was there defect? And it was in the first four to six weeks of life in the seedling greenhouse and getting that crop transplanted. And so we really beefed up our seeds. I'll show you what we're doing here. Even turnips and beets and spinach, crops that are typically drag seeded, we're going to transplant. And that's to remove the defect. And so we have a higher rate of success with them, even though it takes a little more time to get them in. And I'll show you how we've sped the time up it takes to get them in. And so we're going to plant, you know, four to six seeds of turnips in a cell. And actually those turnips are going to grow away from one another. Uh, we're using this paper pot method. And which we're seeding into what's called paper chains. And this thing is going to spread. It's going to spread, spread, spread up and look like a chain. There's 264 cells in here. And so we're going to open it, and we'll fill potty mix in here. Uh, my son loves to use the dibbler, dibble a bunch of holes. And then there's this nifty little seeding device. It's non-electric. It's very simple. It's just two plates of clear plexiglass. 
and the seeds go in the top hole, it's a smaller, and the, the top plate is interchangeable, depending on the size of seed you're using. And so each seed eventually does find a hole. It's like when you're going to church and your mom gave you that thing, you had, you know, did, uh, you had to pay attention to try to get the little balls to go into the holes. I don't know if any of you play with that. Anyhow, that's a, the memory that I had. And, and a seed does find a hole. A seed will find a hole eventually. And then you shift. So the top, what's happening is the top plate's going to shift over the bottom plate, and the seed's going to drop through the larger hole. Okay, one quick question. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one is. You don't have to use pellets. Uh, pellets work really nice in this system. And so then each seed drops in a hole. In less than a minute, you can see up 264. And it used to take much longer than that to do in my hand. Okay, and then, there, then it goes in this paper pot. This is, a, this is a Japanese invention, of course. Let's see if we can get the video to work. So look how look how comfortable this transplanting operation is. Okay, so the Japanese have been using this this system for several decades uh, to do various transplant, mostly alliums and sugar beets, also in rice rice production. And a few of us had were able to get it shipped over here. And, and so farmers are now starting to use it. And I had talked to the Johnny's tool person. And if you'd see, they tell me the new Johnny's catalog, you can now purchase this. And so it's going to be com- more commonly available here. However, it's, we're sold on the system. We've used it for a couple of seasons, and we love it. What can you, uh, what can you use it with? If you hang on a second, I'll get uh, what we're using it on. It's called a paper pot paper transplanter. And it doesn't work on peppers and tomatoes, things that you know like to have a three or four inch pot. Uh, it's not going to work super well on things like watermelons. Uh, things you want to you can space these at two, four, or six inch spacing. However, it works really well on just about everything else. Uh, you can now get them at the Johnny Seed catalog. I'm told the new Johnny's catalog has has, has introduced this. And there's also a website called Small Farm Works. I do a little. It's never perfect. It, it's, it doesn't backfill perfectly, but just, just a little bit by hand occasionally. However, it's a pretty slick system. It's, it usually does a nice job of transplanting. Oh, okay. You saw that. Mm-hmm. And so here we're doing green beans. We'll do edamame soybeans in it, that sort of thing. And one of the reasons I like is we can transplant non-traditional crops. And so this is the first week of April. I'm planting green beans in here. And there's no way in, in northern Indiana you can get green beans to come up the first week of April. So we'll be able to give them to market a month ahead of our competition. Especially if you can do this and the greenhouse. You really have a long growing season. Okay, enough showing off. So this is our favorite type of waste to get rid of is muri. And Muri is overburdening. Translates to overburdening. Essentially, we ask every year, when did we hurt the most? When were we the most overburdened? Because it's like it's a, it's a, it's a, there's a lot of bending over. There's a lot of lifting in our profession. 
And so it's a misconception that this lean system is just about working faster. It's also about making work easier to do. And so every winter, uh, we choose a MURI project uh, to make our work easier to do. And these don't have to be huge projects. Essentially, we ask, when in the last growing season did we hurt the most, and how can we alleviate it and, and take care of that over the winter? And this, so there's a little project we did. One of our interns came up with this suggestion. We load our CSA boxes. We used to load them on a flat surface. And he suggested maybe you should lower the table down here by a couple inches, and it makes it just a little bit easier to load those CSA boxes. Okay? So that's a tiny bit of waste we're getting rid of. However, every year, if you get rid of even a little bit of, a little bit of waste, you're headed the right direction. Your farming is going to get easier. Uh, another example is one year, became, we, our sales of carrots were high enough that it became cumbersome to dig them by hand. And so I went to the local Amish machine shop, and he, designed, he and I designed a carrot digging implement using the tip of a skid loader to help loosen those carrots and, and remove some of the effort. And one year, we got a John Deere gator. We said it was pushing those garden carts around. That was becoming the, was the most cumbersome piece of that year. And one year, we said it was getting compost into the greenhouses. So we, 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 uh, that winter, we modeled the greenhouses and added eight, made sure we had eight foot by eight foot openings in all of them so we can get a skid loader in. Okay, then the last piece of the system, and I want to leave some time that you guys can ask some questions. Um, oh, okay, I want to say one more thing about Murray. And it's your wardrobe, because I see people coming on the farm, uh, interns often, not dressed appropriately. And with produce, it's, it's, it's more like an adventurous sport, like climbing a mountain or going on a long hike, uh, than it is like construction. And, and I had worked in construction, and so I had heavy canvas construction clothes, and, and I had worn very heavy boots. And however, every time you bend over, there's a lot of constriction. And I should, and I, I meant to bring in my luggage. I got pairs of my construction pants uh, that Rachel has, probably six or ten uh, patches all over the holes and such. They just weren't working for production. And by now, you can get pants with what they call articulated knees. And this is an example of them here. We'll put a couple of articulations in here, and so it makes it very easy to bend. So it's an example of making your work just a little bit easier every year. And, and you should wear high wicking clothes, too, that wicks the moisture and sweat away. Um, when we're hosing carrots, there's all kinds of ways you get what, get what as you're working. Okay, so next is to get serious about Kaizen, or continuous improvement. <clears throat> and essentially, Kaizen amounts to when you fix something, you should fix it again. And so, like I said, every year, get more clutter-free, practice that 5S every year. And for that, what we do, before we go on a vacation in the middle of July every year, and before going on vacation, we have the one speck of dust rule. It should be one speck of dust cleaner, the farm should be one speck of dust cleaner than it was the previous July. Even if we're just washing one more window. <laughs> this means we're headed in that direction of cleanliness. You don't have to do this 5S all in one season. It'd be impossible to do on many farms. However, if every year you're improving, that's the goal. And then uh, get more precise on value. So keep asking your customers what they want, when they want it, and how much. And get more precise answering those questions. And then they remove even more of those 10 types of waste. And I can attest after uh, six, six years of doing this that your, it, your work does become easier and it does become higher profit. And so a question I always get asked is, is there a plateau? Because surely there's a point at which you've cut out all the, all the waste that you can and you're just as efficient as possible. And, and my answer is a resound no. 
Because if you are at that point, it's proof that you've lost your mind. Because you've lost your creativity. There's always a better way of doing something. And you should be in probably a nut house, not on a farm. Okay? If you can think, there's a better way of doing something. And it's true that all ten types of waste are actually on our farm. We have not gotten rid of all of them. Okay. At the heart of this Kaizen, continuous improvement, is respecting people. And workers are as close to the waste as we are, and so why not let them help us root it out? There's no, way, there's no way that we on the farm can be at every workstation, closely observing every process. And some of our best ideas have come from workers. And so when they come to us, and like I said, we have three or four new interns every year, so we have a high turnover. But the first thing when they come to us is I show them that list of ten wastes, and I said, I want you to keep your eye, that's part of your job, is to keep an eye out for these wastes that are creeping in and let me know. And Teichi one of my favorite quotes from him, and Toyota workers come to think and not build cars. So there's uh, two types of uh, Kaizen here. There's an easy type, and this is when Rachel and I are sitting in the office, and we dream, we're dreaming out more efficient ways of doing things. And we do come up with better ideas through some of those brainstorming sessions. However, that's the easy type. That's the top down, and then we tell everyone how to implement it. So the harder part is to get people's ideas and suggestions and to implement those ideas and suggestions. However, we found that those would actually sometimes be more effective. And like I said, any type of idea that goes unspoken on a farm is, is, is technically speaking a form of waste. Now, there's a, there's a psychological component here. And the reason is, when you work underneath a person who's paying you, you don't necessarily want to ruffle their feathers. And so if you're, my tip if you're managing people is to make them find ways to make them feel very comfortable ruffling your feathers and, and coming up with better ways of doing things because they're often reticent to do so. And the thing, too, to make clear is that we're still the owners. We're going to make the final call. However, we love your brainstorms. And so one thing that we do is we go to market twice a week and usually send a, a worker into market. And as part of the market report, they send, they send us uh, usually an email or a text that tells us what's left over from market. And then I ask them to send us one or two Kaizen ideas, one or two ideas they had for improving the system. And it gives them, it gives them permission uh, to think, not just to work. And then twice a week, we get an email with a couple of ideas for improving our operations. So it's a benefit on both ends. Okay, so some final thoughts. What's, here's a question. Is what would you do if you lost your tractor? Or if you lost your most important piece of technology? And here's what happened in the 1700s in Japan. Uh, they went from 13, 13, and again, my brother Fritz uh, helped me find these, so he wants you to appreciate it. <laughs> 13,000 oxen in the 1670s, down to 4,000, 1820. Okay, they were losing their most important piece of agricultural technology. At the same time, that households almost doubled. And so there, there, there are historical reasons for this. Um, mainly, it was not cost-effective anymore to feed, to feed oxen. Because at the time, Japan was a fairly isolated island. And with a growing population, they just didn't have the room. They didn't have the herbage to feed humans and animals. And they had to figure out a better process, a better way of doing things. The, now, tell me what was happening over here in the 1700s. They call this, okay, they call this the Industrious Revolution because they're finding industrious ways of doing things in a better manner. 
What was happening over here was called an industrial revolution. Okay, we suddenly had tons of land available. Farmers were moving out west. Uh, we were replacing handwork with McCormick Reapers and so on. Okay, so the exact opposite, it's just historical circumstance. However, these were the people who are, whose grandkids were the first workers at Toyota. Okay, this is the kind of thinking that entered Toyota. And so it's a little disingenuous, and actually one of the MIT professors who visited Toyota in the 1980s, he actually came out to our farm a couple months ago, and he said this brings it full circle around for him. Because this, this way of lean thinking actually began on farms because of these historical circumstances. And so they did it. The Japanese farmers increased production through the 1700s through process improvement, even though they lost their, their biggest piece of technology. And they actually, they measure this, they know this because uh, they can measure lifespan, and lifespan in, increased by 10 years through that period. And so people were actually eating more and eating healthier without their biggest piece of technology. And it was just process improvement. It wasn't through acquiring more and more technology. And so it's possible to stay small and stay your right size. And here's my conclusion. There's two ways to grow your farm. And number one, constant expansion. Get bigger every year, attractors more land, more customers. And you need new counts. However, there's another option. Stay your size and lean up. Cut out the waste. Uh, shave time to create capacity vacuums. Uh, practice production control. Remove your waste in motion. Get rid of unneeded tools. Uh, rate your hurt. Get rid of it, et cetera. It is a cheaper, easier, more fun to do, and it is a profitable, uh, a profitable way to farm. So that's, that's my presentation, and thanks. Thanks again for being here. That was Ben Hartman from 2016 in Omaha, Nebraska at the Acres USA Eco Ag Conference and Trade Show. Thank you again for joining us on a very lengthy Tractor Time podcast, but we love this talk and the information that was in it. Uh, Be Lean, uh, Joel Salton calls Ben Hartman's book uh, something that should be applied on every single farm. So you can find it on acresusa.com, uh, find it uh, on Amazon as well, support Ben, or call us at 1-800-355-5313. Again, that's 1-800-355-5313. Thanks again for us. This is Tractor Time. My name is Ryan Slaybaugh, and join us again next week. In the meantime, have a great rest of your week and a weekend. Thank you.